Hello, welcome back to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions on mindfulness, meditation practice, Buddhism, and life. We're here to help. So we're looking for questions that have a direct connection to your spiritual well-being, mental well-being, emotional well-being. If you have any questions about your practice or your life, sincere questions, we're here to answer. So you can post your questions at any time. For the first 15 minutes, we'll just have silent meditation as an opportunity for everyone to post their questions and settle in for the session. There's no video for this hour. We have intentionally turned the video off to maintain the focus on the teachings and the Dhamma and the questions. So if you don't have questions, you can close your eyes, sit back, stay mindful. So I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to start answering. In the meantime, just do either walking or sitting meditation. Post your questions if you have them.
All right, we're back. So from here on, we'd ask that the question be reserved only for questions. If you have questions, you can continue to post them. If not, just sit back and listen. Stay mindful. You can note to yourself hearing, hearing. And stay focused on your experiences in the present moment. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. How can I deliver a notion that I acquire in meditation practice with others in order to deliver a message which is clear, trying to let the person with whom I interact feel a sense of security, in other words, at ease? I don't think you should worry about such things. You should try and be mindful and let the learning come as a result of your being present when you act. So when you act and speak in relation to other people, in relation to your own well-being, mindfulness allows you to see both the things that you're interacting with, the experiences that you're reacting to, and your reactions and, and the effects that they have. In other words, you get to see more clearly the nature of your actions and the nature of your interactions also the nature of the things that you interact with, which lets you both make right decisions and see clearly when you're making wrong decisions. So don't worry about figuring out how to solve this problem or that problem, how to do this, how to do that. Try and work on how to be mindful. If you want to do something specific, like deliver whatever it is you want to deliver, and you should note wanting, and don't don't uh, lose sight of those desires and aversions and worries and fears that propel us to do things that cause us stress and suffering. What thoughts can help me forgive my enemies and maybe at some point help them as well? When you give blessings to all living beings, can you keep your enemies in your prayers? Yes. If you have people who you consider to be enemies, well, you should change that and determine that you don't consider them to be your enemies. If they have animosity towards you, you can be clear in your mind that you don't wish them any animosity by making wishes like that. You have to get in your mind that you don't have enemies. There are people who you experience anger towards, but it has nothing to do with them. That's your anger. You just have to not angry, angry. Change your mind. Don't have any enemies. That's not a good thing to have. I wouldn't worry about helping them. Um, just try and do your best as a human being and your best as a mindful human being and everything you do will be helpful and good for yourself and others. My meditation teacher says that all Buddhist monks from the West teach wrong. I used to like meditation, but since he proclaims this one right way to go, I feel a lot of pressure meditating. Any advice? That's a pretty harsh blanket statement. Uh, for sure, it has to be said that those who were not born Buddhist, who didn't grow up Buddhist, who come to Buddhist late, are at a disadvantage and are often riddled and plagued by wrong views and interpretations and limitations in their practice. So if you want to say that any Western Buddhist, Buddhist monks from the West um, are, should be met with uh, a reasonable dose of skepticism. That's fair. But to say that they all teach wrong is not fair. Uh, many Western monks teach the way they were taught by Eastern monks. And I think a, a fair number of them teach it fairly faithfully. 
No, some may not, of course. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if some are not so faithful and rather make up their own new techniques and so on. But like, for example, a lot of what I teach is just parroting what my teacher said. And I don't know that that's quite fair. I'm sure I am limited in my dissemination as well. So I, it would have been kinder and probably more accurate if he had said that they should be met with some skepticism because it's harder for them to assimilate the teachings and they have to wrestle with their wrong views that they grew up with and that sort of thing. Whereas people from Buddhist societies didn't have to wrestle with wrong views, so it was much easier for them to assimilate the teachings and they're much more harmonious with their worldview that they grew up with. As far as proclaiming one right way to go, that's actually a whole other kettle of fish, and it's it does smack of um, clinging, if to, to put it bluntly. I mean, if someone's going to proclaim one right way, they're dogmatic, it's probably incorrect. Unless they're just saying that the one right way is to be mindful, then I would be inclined to agree. But if they're talking about one right technique and so on. As far as feeling pressure meditating, that's a third issue here. We can separate that from everything else. Uh, advice about pre feeling pressure in meditation. Well, the Satipatthana Sutta had us to uh, focus on mindfulness. So uh, being familiar, becoming familiar with that feeling. So you feel pressure is probably stress, maybe worry. Uh, those are the realities the Buddha said. And we are to see the, the worry as it is. My teacher taught us to say worried, worried. Just remind yourself, worried, worried. Stressed, stressed, or so on. If you, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. I think this is by a Western monk. It was written by a Buddhist monk from the West, me. Uh, but I would say that a fair amount of it, the stuff that is not my own um, limited capacity and, and ability to teach and be accurate, but the concepts uh, in it are taken pretty much from my teacher, who is a very revered teacher in Thailand. So if you can forgive all of my shortcomings in the booklet, then uh, there's certainly, I think, a fair amount of his teachings shine through there, because that's what I, that's why I wrote the booklet, to try and put into writing in English the things that he taught. So I guess I would say that um, putting the limitations of being a non-Buddhist foreigner aside, you can still get good things from Western Buddhist monks, I think. I mean, one thing about uh, Buddhist monks in the West, they often take it more seriously or they're more focused on the um, the essence because they're not as interested in the culture, they're not as tied to the culture. So they are able to focus more on the essence, and you can often get good teachings from them, even if they are limited in their practice and attainments and so on. If I'm seeing a picture in my mind while hearing a song in my mind and thinking about it, should I note seeing, hearing, and thinking? Not one of them, whatever one's clearest. Just stay with it until it goes away, or after a long time, it doesn't go away, just go back to your main object. When I leave the rising and falling to note, say, angry, and then the physical component of tense becomes more clear, should I switch from noting angry to tense? You can. I mean, be clear that the anger has disappeared first. And remember that anger is one thing, the pain that's associated with anger is another, and the tension is another. Usually when you note angry, it's already disappeared or quickly disappears. It can quickly come back, but you, over time you start to get better at and seeing it arise and cease. One thing you can do is once the anger is gone, maybe note the tension and try to just go back to the rising and falling. Try not to jump and jump and jump around too much. After a while, just 
stop jumping from one thing to the other and go back to the rising and falling. Is it very important to meditate in the morning and the evening? Morning and afternoon fits my schedule better. No, it's uh, it's very important to have moments of mindfulness. So if you can do that throughout the day, that's great. Trying to fit in as many formal sessions as you can throughout the day, once, twice a day, uh, is great, even greater, because those periods will give you more opportunities to cultivate these moments of mindfulness. Is it right to observe the nature of everything to be transient, and so everything is worthless, or not of high value, but just cause and effects? It feels I am understanding something wrong here. Well, that sounds mostly like an intellectual observation. You rationally, uh, through, obser through observation, think to yourself, everything is transient, everything is worthless. But it can often be based on, on direct observation. It's just not strong enough. If you have a direct, clear, un, uh, unfettered, I guess, unadulterated, experience of impermanence, um, th then the next moment is cessation, then you've become a sotapanna. So it's just about creating the clarity of vision. We don't focus on the experience of impermanent suffering and non-self. That's the result. If you start to focus on those as your practice, you're no longer practicing. Practice is satipatthana, not vipassana. Satipatthana means the establishing of mindfulness. So saying to yourself, seeing, seeing, or hearing, or pain, or that sort of thing. I am the victim of discrimination. Tell me how to respect the time I have to go forth until I am fully healed. Okay, well, being the victim of discrimination is never going to be your concern as a mindfulness meditation practitioner. Your concern will be how you feel about being a victim of discrimination. So how these perceptions that you have of being the victim, I'm not saying it's wrong perception, but that's all it is. It's just a perception. You perceive that maybe because someone says, I discriminate against you. So you say, yep, I'm the victim of discrimination, but it's still your perception, no matter how valid it is. It's not the reality. The reality is your percept. It's a per you have a perception, and you react to that. So you probably, or you may be upset about that. You may be not, but that would be the only thing there is that you'd want to note if you're upset. You'd want to note that you're thinking like that, that you're the victim of discrimination. Because it's not to trivialize it, but it is um, an object of obsession and identification. It leads you to identify I, I, I am, that sort of thing. Ahankara, it's called. Um, I don't understand the next part exactly. I mean, I guess I get kind of what you're asking, but um, I, I mean, I don't know what to say to that exactly. I guess I would recommend you do some mindfulness meditation. If you haven't read our booklet, read our booklet. We have this at-home course that you can sign up for. And uh, you can go from there. Do we never focus the breath at the nostril cavity because this is some of the practice? Impermanence is seen in breath, cold in and warm out, so why not valid? This focus point can never lead to nibbana? It is valid. Uh, it's just not as it's not considered as uh, useful it's more likely to lead to samatha because over time there's the tranquility it's very subtle and so there becomes a focus on it's very easy to focus on a conceptual breath after a while i mean i've never really practiced that way so i'm just going by what people say and people's experiences 
but you're absolutely right. Technically, it is still experience. But the key is that you're clear that you're focusing on the experience. And because it gets very subtle, it can be hard. It's much easier at the stomach because there's nothing subtle about the movements of the stomach. And you'll see very quickly impermanent suffering and non-self. People mostly don't like it because of that, because it's not subtle, it's not calming, it's not relaxing, it's not flowing, not as comfortable, especially if you have the inclination to control because you try to control the stomach and it just gets unpleasant. But that's the learning, that's the lesson. The lesson is to see how unpleasant things can be when you try to control them and to see how your your control just makes you suffer. Is it beneficial to note intentions to move foot during walking meditation? I'd say it's too much. Even you might notice the intention. It's not some magic where if you note everything, something good happens. It's about evoking a state of mind. So as long as you're noting consistently, it's enough. The noting is not the practice. Not Noting is not mindfulness, it's the tool to use to evoke mindfulness. So it's not like the more words that you say, the better. But you can certainly note intentions at other times. Like what we recommend is between the four postures of the body, walking, standing, sitting, and lying, when you switch from one to the other, then you would note in wanting or intending wanting to switch, wanting to stand, wanting to stand, wanting to sit, etc. How do you balance a worldly life with a spiritual one? I feel like a lot of people in my life rub against the Buddhist lifestyle. How can one balance personal boundaries and social inclusion? Well, try and live a simple life. Try and wrap your head around the idea of not being social, of not requiring so much socializing. Uh, try and become comfortable with being alone because it's always going to be more peaceful. Try and let go of your feelings of craving for socialization and so on. I mean, that's the sort of thing that comes from mindfulness. So over time, you'll just incline towards a more quiet lifestyle. But ultimately, unless you're deciding to leave the worldly life and become a homeless, wandering mendicant, you're always going to have this clash. I mean, even if you do become a monk, you're still going to have potential issues. So you ultimately have to resign yourself to the fact that the world is broken and chaotic, and that's just the part of life. We're much more in this practice about facing and changing our perspective on things than trying to change the external realities. But they naturally change as well, and you're naturally become inclined to change them as appropriate when when the opportunity arises you mentioned not jumping around with noting but as one gets more practiced with noting is it appropriate that one's skill is more developed and thus faster there's nothing beneficial about going faster, even if you can. That's an interesting skill, but it, no, it's not actually beneficial. If you if your mind is jumping around, your best bet is to note distracted, distracted. If your mind is going quickly from one thing to another, it should be fluid, natural. It should not be fast, not be slow.
What kind of meditation center should I seek out in my country when I follow this tradition? Should I look for vipassana, for mentions of the venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, or anything else? Yeah, mostly Mahasi Sayadaw. Um, there are some places where Ajahn Tong uh, has students who have started centers. You can look for that as well. But Mahasi Sayadaw is much more common. The problem with Vipassana, and it's not exactly a problem, but it's that it has nothing to do with uh, this tradition much of the time. Many centers practice what they call Vipassana, and it's not the same as what we practice. So that's not a problem. It just means it's not going to help you find centers in this tradition. So our our focus is much more on Satipatthana. So you'll often see centers talk about Satipatthana, Vipassana, that sort of thing. It's just, maybe that's that's not really fair because that's just a different in wording, but it is more common, I think, to see Satipatthana, Vipassana talked about in our tradition. How much should one force the attention to stay with some object, pain or a certain feeling which is disliked, and not let the mind move to another object? Which objects are worth this? Well, you shouldn't really force the mind. You can't really force the attention to stay with some object. You should uh, intend to, but if your mind is carried away to something else, there's not much you can do about that. Just note whatever else it is and then go back to the rising and falling. You try to train yourself over time to be able to stay. I mean, just by having that intention again and again, your mind starts to become more able to stay with objects. The things you should stay with for a long time are the kind of things that either are reactions like liking or disliking or worry or fear, that sort of thing, or are things that will evoke that in you, like pain and pleasure and certain kinds of thoughts. Well, thoughts maybe not fair. They're not the sorts of things that last for a long time. But pain and pleasure and and uh, special experiences like seeing lights or colors or pictures or hearing sounds or that sort of thing. Anything that would likely give rise to liking or disliking or worry or fear. It's worth staying with for a while. Can meditation purify someone's mind? So mind isn't a thing that belongs to a person. Mind is a moment of experience. That's mind. Something Mind is something that arises and ceases. One moment arising and ceasing. So... Meditation can bring about the arising of minds, of moments of consciousness that are pure. Uh, it can also lead to moments of minds that are purifying, like especially those that contain wisdom. And they're purifying in the sense that they lead to more minds that are pure, or they cut off the potential for the arising of future minds that are impure. But colloquially speaking, yes, it's for purifying your mind. If meditation is seeing what it is, the reality surrounding me, then how does it help motivate helping others? Well, it doesn't. You're not inclined to help others, to go out of your way to help others as a result. Because that would be um, that would be a, a deluded sort of inclination. Why? Because it brings nothing. Helping others um, in and of itself brings nothing in the sense that there, there's no 
fruit that comes from it um, in and of itself. So, so you could spend an eternity helping others and see no uh, benefit except for I'm trying to word this carefully because there is only one benefit, and that's the benefit to yourself. So it makes you a better person to help others. And so the only rational reason for helping others is to make it a part of you becoming a better person. Unfortunately, helping others isn't sufficient to make you a, a good person or to purify your, your mind from evil intentions and that sort of thing. Helping others can often be plagued by reactions and um, stresses and burnout and that sort of thing, right? But um, helping others isn't a valid choice of, of spiritual goal because it never ends. There's no conceivable end to that. That's why the Buddha taught us to help ourselves. There is a conceivable end to helping yourself. What meditation does do is helps you uh, frees you from cruelty, frees you from stinginess, uh, frees you from arrogance, and so it makes you a much better source of help when others seek it out. So, it's, if you want to be reassured at how good it is to be mindful, one of the many reassurances is how much better it makes you at quote unquote helping others in the sense really, really what it make what what a better way of saying is it it makes you better able to deal with others other beings and other and experiences in general including those who are seeking help from you and so instead of turning them away instead of being cruel instead of being indifferent, you are inclined to uh, do the right thing and provide them with support and advice and that sort of thing. So, practically speaking, of course, seeing what it is makes you much better able, much much more helpful to all beings because it's you're in a you're in a position to do to to help. You're in a position to give real help through the clarity and the purity of your mind. When a line is crossed and people are treating us so badly because we never stand up for ourselves, is it okay to be firmer than we ever have been before when standing up for ourselves? Yeah, as long as you're mindful. I mean, don't worry about uh, how you should act or you should do this or you should do that. Just try and be mindful. Don't be too afraid of how you might act. Um, just try and be present with it and present with your emotions and your reactions and the consequences and learn. You live and learn. You live and learn if you're in a proper mind state, proper frame of mind to learn. Not everybody lives and learns. If your mind is polluted and corrupt, you can have all the learning experiences and make all the mistakes you want and never learn from your mistakes. It's all about your state of mind. So focus on that. There's nothing wrong with being firm. You just better be better be right to be firm. Better be uh, firm of clear mind or else you're likely to, well, if your mind is not clear, then firm or not firm, you're in a bad way. You're going to react badly and behave badly, hurt yourself, hurt others. What's the difference between focusing attention on the movement of the belly and having an open, non-selective awareness at the six sense doors during Vipassana meditation, according to Mahasi Sayadaw. Well, it's kind of looking. 
in that if you just have this non-selective awareness you're you're going to have periods where you're looking for something or you're you're wandering or where there's nothing the um the the mind part of the mind has the impulse to do something and so we give it something to do we give it something to pay attention to the mind never has to wonder what it's going what it should focus on that sort of thing so we focus on the stomach by default we say okay this is what you're going to do you're going to focus on the stomach and then anything else that comes after that we're in a, a good position to switch to it but we never have to wonder when when something disappears you come back to the stomach you always have something to go back to doesn't matter what object but having a basic object is practically useful of course in an ultimate sense if your mind is pure then there's there's no reason to be focused on one thing or another the problem is without guidance uh, and without being enlightened your mind is very easily without direction your mind very easily gets off the path and stops being mindful so having something to focus on keeps the mind busy keeps the mind um on track always having something next to be mindful of i have noticed that noting twice or with two words like right foot left foot enables me to notice a sensation arising then passing away that is impermanence is this to be developed Oh no, did I not answer that question at all? Your answer didn't would, come through, Bunty. I was answering it. Boy, was it a good answer. No. Uh, so, so starting at this question, right? I can ask it again. No, no, I got it. That's fine. All right. Yes. Sorry about that. Uh, so yes, what I was saying to myself was that uh, it's fine. It's it's perfectly valid practice. Uh, the only caution I would give you is on trying to develop it. So I would say, no, don't worry about developing it. You can notice that that helps for certain things and use it, but don't try and rely. On, try not to rely on it or think that somehow that's going to make your practice better if you try and incorporate that into everything. Uh, if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said he notices the arising or he, or he notices the ceasing or he notices the arising and the ceasing so there, there's you're going to see it anyway you're going to see reality it's just for some things it's useful to have two parts to the word like that's kind of why we say rising falling or that sort of thing can be useful but certainly you don't have to do that with everything some things are just very quick and so you just note them once or you're noting it after it happened um, because it was a moment of experience. So you're just reminding yourself, hey, that was that, like thinking, for example. Once we get to days of determination in our tradition more than once, is it possible for our mind state to become unpure by coming back to a fast-paced society? So if you if a person becomes a sotapanna, then 
there are certain things that they never go back to certain certain level of impurity that never comes back but even a soda, a soda panic can still give rise to many types of impurity there's just a certain level that they will never go back to and then of course if someone becomes a sakadagami it's even less if someone becomes an anagami then there's no uh, aversion or sensual desire at all and then if one becomes an arahant well there's no defilement or impurity even to the smallest degree but that doesn't say anything about specific days or, or techniques of practice it's more about attainment so um you can see for yourself what you've done away with and what you have left to to work on and just be cognizant of that and direct yourself accordingly One thing, sorry, one thing um, that I will add is often in any meditation course, in any tradition that's uh, intensive, you gain, no matter what type of practice it is, you gain a lot of concentration and uh, tranquility. You're not accosted by the, um, the experiences of fast-paced society, and so it becomes easier for the mind and so your mind becomes very calm and relaxed and that can be mistaken for um, enlightenment or purity and that sort of thing you will absolutely lose going back to fast-paced society and it leads to discouragement with some meditators who think that they've gained uh, they, they realize that they haven't gained as much as they thought they did so you should temper your expectations and uh, realize that much of what you gain, not all, but much of what you gain is just the tranquility of being in a meditation center, and you should be prepared. You should be um, prepared to have to let that go. What you don't let go of is wisdom, understanding, and the skills that you can apply in your fast-paced society as well. Is working as a psychiatrist and doing compulsory treatment on psychotic patients wrong livelihood, since the Buddha says that any forced imprisoning is wrong? What about forced medication? Yeah, I don't think... There's, um, I think the consensus is not very good. I, I actually, I don't know about the consensus. My my feeling is that it's not very good working as a, not working as a psychiatrist, but if as a psychiatrist you have to force um, treatments. Now, if someone is psychotic, they're out of their mind, um, that's an exception. I think there is definitely room for containing them. Um, until they're over their psychotic break, but I guess if they are if they are a psychopath, no. If they are prone to psychopathy, psychotic breaks. Um, I don't know that the Buddha said that any forced imprisonment is wrong. I think it's not something we want to do as Buddhists, but we kind of leave that to society to imprison people who it thinks it should imprison. Uh, forced medication, yeah, it's problematic. Maybe you could switch to become a psychotherapist and teach people mindfulness. I don't know too much about psychiatrists, but I get a sense that there are issues there. What's the difference between focusing attention on the movement of the belly and having an open, non-selective awareness at the six sense doors during Vipassana meditation, according to Mahasi Sayadaw? Didn't I already answer this? 
the same thought came to mind. Oh, we've had some duplicates, people re-asking. I'll move on to the next one. What is the relationship between compassion and no self? How can compassion arise when there could be nothing inherent to generate the compassion? Is the mind to generate compassion? So your your premise here about non-self is not the point of non-self. Non-self is a quality of experiences. Quality of experiences, it's a quality of ultimate realities, which make up experiences. So it's something to be seen through the practice of satipatthana, see the qualities of these experiences being non-self. It's not, I have no self, there is no self. That's not what the teaching of non-self is about. Compassion, on the other hand, is a different type of practice. It's a practice that doesn't focus on ultimate realities. It doesn't focus on experiences. And so it has nothing to do with non-self. Compassion focuses on human, on beings, living beings as the object. And since living beings are conceptual, it has no relationship to non-self. It's just a different state of mind, a different focus of mind, a different way of looking at reality. And so compassion will never lead to enlightenment, but it can help temper cruelty and anger and those sorts of things. It can lead to the Brahma realms, rebirth in the high heavens. What does an enlightened being note? Could thoughts arise? If there is an absence of thought, are, are us worldly practitioners that use thoughts, concepts, to navigate life condemned to samsara? No thoughts arise. Thoughts are a part of experience. Thoughts are not a problem. This is a misconception that is quite common among meditators. We're not telling you not to think telling you to be mindful of your thoughts, just like you're mindful of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings. Vinyate vinyata matang bhavisati. That which is cognized will be only that which is cognized, or you could say that which is thought will only be that which is thought. Is it a different degree of mindfulness or number of moments of mindfulness in daily life versus formal practice? Probably both. Mostly both because your mind is not going to be as strong during those moments during your daily life. It's going to be weakened by all the hindrances that arise during daily life. And you're also going to be less likely to cultivate as many moments of mindfulness. How to overcome falling asleep during sitting? Well, to some extent you can't. You can try to stand up and do standing meditation. You can try to splash water on your face. You can try to lie down and do lying meditation, which will usually put you to sleep. But sometimes as a last resort, uh, lying down will help. Usually more like standing, even walking. You can try doing walking meditation instead. But um, generally, this is an issue that um, many people have when they first start to do intensive practice or when they first start to do practice in general. Over time, it should get better. If you take up a daily practice, it, over time, it should become less of an issue, depending on what else you're doing during the day. But to some extent, you have to just put up with it. Try and see when it happens. Does it happen? Try and catch which moment it happens on, whether it's on rising or on falling. And if you can catch it, that will help you overcome it. Try and note tired, tired. Do I correctly understand that attention becomes more open and inclusive, like an open awareness, as one progresses in the stages of perception, according to the Manual of Insight? Uh, 
No, I don't think you should think like that. Uh, you shouldn't try to adapt your practice or anything like that. I mean, I don't know what it means to be more open and inclusive. Your practice, the technique shouldn't change. Always come back to the stomach when something distracts you from it, go to note it. Um, I don't know if you've done our at-home course or intensive course or anything, but we do have a sequence of practices to give you. Um, I wouldn't create these ideas like you're you're going to be focusing on more things or you're going to be more inclusive or something like that. That's not something you should worry about. Your mind changes. In fact, what you should be ready for, anticipate, or not necessarily anticipate, but be uh, ready to face an unpredictable quality of the mind that sometimes your mind becomes open and inclusive, sometimes it becomes focused on a single thing, sometimes it becomes distracted, sometimes it becomes uh, focused, that sort of thing. The mind is unpredictable, and don't try and think of it as should get, should become like this, should become like that. Bhante, we've crossed the hour and answered every question in the top tier. Wonderful. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you all for coming out. For those who are just listening, for everyone who did mindfulness practice during this session. Blessings to you all. May you all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Thank you to Chris and Edit for your help. Sadhu, everyone. Sadhu.